Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tonight we are with comedian and historian Mike Donovan. Mostly historian tonight. A little bit of the, the comedian at the end because he's got a new book and a gig to talk about. But we agreed to talk about great leader Dwight David Eisenhower. There's a lot to talk about. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. So you have, uh, you know, you are prolific and today you republished five books in one day. Is that true? Yes, not new books, but I re, you know redid them. Found you them. went through them and updated yeah, them. Yeah, changed a few things, found a few errors, and added some illustrations. Great. So Dwight Eisenhower, uh, how about some highlights that exemplify why we should pay attention to Dwight Eisenhower? Well, it was kind of a, a default rise to the top. In other words, like a, a, a team that doesn't make mistakes, and all of a sudden at the end of the year you see, the, how did these guys have such a great record? Well, it was the things he didn't do that makes him great, in my opinion. So he kind of got there through attrition? Other people would make mistakes and I feel he didn't? that way, yes, that he was always a, a people person, uh, not easily crossed, but his default position was to be a, a really good guy. How about some formative experiences? Uh, I understand he went to West Point, played football, and I understand he got he was injured by some allegedly by a local person. Yes, from uh, a chump from Tufts. Now, uh, w when I think of Eisenhower, uh, you asked me before the show: Is he did he have an ego problem? Just the opposite. He's very modest, and he's also very classy and modest when he criticized others throughout his career. And when I've read two or three of his books. This uh, sense of modesty is an overwhelming trait. It's overwhelming. So when he mentions in his book, At Ease, that I was the most ferocious hitter on the West Point team as a linebacker. So you know it's true. That's right. When he says he knew that he could have been a professional football player, he had no doubt about it. I 100% believe him because he's so modest. It's like when he throws in a brag, it counts. So he's playing uh, uh, for the U.S. Army and uh, West Point, and the, uh, a guy from Tufts came down and you know, gave him a chop, and uh, he hurt his knee, and it was never the same for the rest of his life. And then he thought he was making a comeback, and one day he jumped off a horse, and then you could hear him screaming all the way back to, Ab to Denison, Texas, where he was born. And in, in, during the World War II Normandy landings, he jumped off, uh, a, a boat or a horse, I forget, but he heard it again. But it, was, it all went back to that same football. But that changed history, that injury. So is the guy alive that did it today? Uh, well, he claimed that there's two or three people that claim to have been the guy that hurt him, and one of them is named uh, Blaine Richardson, and his uh, son, uh, Bill Richardson, uh, became uh, Secretary of uh, Commerce under the Clinton. Is that something that you would want to own up to? Yeah, I'm not That's sure. A, is that a cheap shot? That, that it... No, he didn't say it was a cheap shot, but it was. he was never the same. Okay, and it changed history because otherwise he might have been a football player instead of... He definitely uh, might have been. Commander like of the Supreme he, Allied. He played baseball, hockey, just he was, a, he was a great athlete. All right. There's so many things to get to. We can get right to the meat right away. Uh, 
early on, 1945, World War II, crucial choice. You know, he's the boss of, of things over there. And uh, this is one of the biggest things. Early on, decides not to cross the Elbe, not to take uh, Berlin, allow the Soviets to do it. Very controversial. What's the thinking and what was the fallout on that? It's a very uh, difficult study in terms of you're not going to come to any conclusions where you can say absolutely one way is, was the right way and one way was the wrong way. The conventional defense of Eisenhower is that the, pre, uh, the agreements that had already been arranged with the Soviet Union, the, the, line, the geographical lines of demarcation were already set. So after the war was over, they were going to have to withdraw from all this territory they had shed thousands of lives to acquire. Uh, so they would have to enter territory that they had ceded to the Soviet Union. They would have to withdraw. Why bother? Why bother? So that, that's, the, that's the logic. But other historians say, you know, in the, in the atmosphere of, of combat, it really wouldn't have made any difference. Uh, since Stalin had no intention of honoring any of his agreements, why should the United States uh, lose this opportunity to take Berlin and, and, and maybe at least be there to make sure that the Russians honor their side of the agreements? So in other words, we'll withdraw, but you have to show your behavior in, say, Poland and Romania and other places, and then we'll withdraw. So it would have worked. The argument saying that he was wrong is that we could have really managed to get something out of it in spite of your argument that we had to withdraw. All right. And also, his relationship with Montgomery, how did that play into everything? Well, Montgomery was technically the ground commander in Europe, and... Uh, Eisenhower was the, you know, like the manager, the grand, like the, the editor-in-chief, the guy that owns the newspaper. And Montgomery was technically the editor, the guy that's doing the work. But it was an illusion. In actuality, everybody knew that if Montgomery misbehaved, he could be sacked because the United States was providing most of the material and most of the, uh, the men by 1944. So every... But Montgomery lost sight of it. He started to really believe that he was in command, and, and they had a couple of showdowns, which were pretty ugly, where you know, Eisenhower just had to say, look, you know, I'm the boss. Apparently you've got it in your, in your head that you're not. Uh, but you know, if you want to, if we, we, can take it, we can take it to Churchill or FDR. It's your call. That's heavy stuff. Yeah, either, either guy. It's your call. We'll, we'll call him up right now. And then he backed off. But, oh, go ahead. No, no. Uh, also, Eisenhower really probably should not have gotten the job of Supreme Allied Commander. It should have gone to Marshall, but... But Marshall felt... He wanted the job, but Marshall felt that he could be more useful in FDR and Leahy and King and all these other uh, top-notch bigwigs that were actually running the war from Washington. They felt the same way. They, you, you're more useful to us here. And we have this guy, Eisenhower, who's excellent, but... He doesn't have an ego problem. He's not like a Patton. He's not like a MacArthur. He's somebody that we can trust to delegate authority to in Europe, and we won't have to worry about him taking actions on his own that's going to upset the apple cart. And so Marshall— So they trusted him more to, to be a, an operator on his own. Marshall could have fired Eisenhower. If he, he never had a reason to, but he could have. So he was really the guy in command in Europe. And then you had Montgomery, who was the, the ground commander— but again, he got the idea that he was really the commander. But you know, you're just the ground commander. Right. 
All right, now we're at 1952 election, uh, and Eisenhower enters as a Republican. What were his the planks in his platform? Well, most of all, he was a uh, he didn't want to see someone get in that didn't have uh, his his own ideas about foreign policy. He felt that uh, his endorsement he was he could king me. You, you, whoever he picks will be the Republican nominee. His endorsement was so powerful, it was insane. And so he started meeting all the other Republican candidates just to decide. This is his version of it anyway. He met with all the Republican candidates and interviewed them and tried to find the right guy that seemed closest to his views on foreign policy. And he came to the conclusion, especially after talking to Robert Taft, who was the most powerful man in the Senate, that nobody seems to be on the same page as Eisenhower. And they were all pretty much isolationist, at they least Taft very, was. Very much isolationist. And here's, here's Eisenhower. He's an internationalist relative to his area. He's going to Moscow and meeting with the Soviet leaders. He, he's very much involved. He's involved in the transition of power in Italy. Uh, he's very involved in everything in the international scene. And then he comes home and he finds in 1952 that all of the Republicans want to withdraw from every type of uh, foreign alliance. Including NATO. Including NATO. And he just said, well, apparently I have to run because I'm the only one that seems to be on the right page. That's his version anyway. You could also be cynical and say, well, he wanted to be president, period, and that's what he said. That's, yeah, who knows? Well, your, your sense is that's not the case, though. Right. Okay. And also at the time, besides the isolationist versus not... There were a couple of other things. There was uh, the communist threat, which is a real thing in, in 1953. I mean, they had had spies give away the Manhattan Project secret to Stalin, and people knew that by now. So it was a, it was a genuine thing. They were catching, catching spies over here. And also federal deficits were on the, on the docket at the time. Right. But as far as the threat of communism, interestingly, Dulles and Eisenhower were not McCarthyists. They were not that focused, and they were not paranoid at all, I would say, relative to the era, about domestic infiltration by the communists. That McCarthy, we have in the State Department all these communists. They were not on that track. He was not on that on that. But relative to page. the Soviet Union period, us versus them, big time hawk. Big-time anti-communist, big-time recognize the threat and not minimize it. But on, on the domestic page, a different story. All right. Then a year later, he uh, threatened to use nuclear weapons. He threatened to use nuclear weapons until China agreed to peace terms in the Korean deal. And you have a lot to say about that. Yes, well, you got to have China. Actually, who really was responsible for the Korean War is still a mystery to this very day. The consensus is probably the Soviet Union was behind it, or was the North Korean, did they do it on their own, and then the Soviet Union backed them up after the fact? Uh, it's silly to think that the Chinese initiated it because they ended up in a, a very costly war and they, they waited so long to intervene that I would say that if they were involved at the outset, they probably would have shown their hand at some point sooner than when they were about to be invaded at the Yalu. So this is a good point to ask you about uh, the, the, what happened when North Korea never signed the treaty. Yes, in 1953, in June, uh, first of all, the reason that Eisenhower managed to end the Korean War was he just got lucky. 
Stalin died on March 5th, 1953. And if Stalin hadn't died, the Korean War would have gone on for who knows how long. But Syngman Rhee, the president of South Korea, he, uh, everybody in the world wanted a truce. We wanted to, got to find a way to end this war. We need an armistice. We need an armistice. We need to end this horrible war. And Syngman Rhee is saying, no, I do not want an armistice. I want this war to continue. And everyone's looking at him like, why on earth would you want the war to continue? Well, it's pretty logical if you think about it. Well, he wants the United Korea. He wants to be the president of Korea. He doesn't want two Koreas. And he's just, his position was, well, I either win or I lose. I don't want a half-baked solution to this. I'm the president of this country. And he, Rhee was not a great guy. He has a lot of bad things on his record. However, he was a Korean patriot, and, and he had a lifetime of being a Korean patriot, and he wanted the country unified. So he was against the armistice. He was totally against it. And when it was finally signed in July, the United States and the UN signed for South Korea. South Korea didn't even sign their own armistice. And speaking of Stalin's death, how did that change everything? How did it change things in the, in the Soviet Union or Russia for the citizens? How did that change it, how it projected its power around uh, the world? Well, everybody could breathe again because he had, uh, you know, he had lost his mind. He was already a tyrant that had, in the 1920s, had, you know, through the Great Famine, he had killed at least 25 million Russians, and he had uh, ex uh, had mass murdered uh, members of the Politburo. He had killed 66 percent of the Red Army uh, officer corps. I mean, he he had already lost his mind when he was a younger man, but old Stalin was like Howard Hughes. You know, he was like decrepit and, you know, uh, no hygiene and no one could talk to him. And, and he was, I think, literally insane. And so you've got an insane person that's running the, the USSR and he's conjuring up these anti-Semitic paranoid plots that don't exist and having, uh, he's reviving the, the pogroms that go back 80 years it was just totally, his death couldn't have come at a better time because he was getting worse all the time. Okay. And so... What year was that he died? 53. Oh, so who was between Stalin and Khrushchev? Probably a, uh, two or three. Well, there was a little period of a couple of years where there was a triumvirate, Malenkov and Khrushchev, and uh, I forget, Kagan, I forget the third one, but there was a little, there was a little struggle for power, but it wasn't a, a bad one. It was just a jousting for power, and then Khrushchev emerged around 56. Oh, so Khrushchev has so been... For, for about three years, it was a triumvirate. Okay. A good. Thanks for clearing that up. Next, let's see. The, oh, speaking of nuclear weapons, there was a policy called the New Look policy, meant, meaning the New Look of defense, which focused on nuclear weapons rather than massive army divisions because nukes were cheaper. Right. Actually, that had gone on. Eisenhower picked up on it, but that had started under Truman when everybody wanted, you know, bring the boys home, power everything down. And at the same time, a mixed message where we have to stand up to the communists. We need. So, like you say, there's, we, the doctrine of massive retaliation, that was a Dulles specialty, which says that anybody that messes with us anywhere in the world, we will just nuke all your cities and then you won't mess with us anymore. That's back when we could say that. Right, when you had the monopoly. One of them was in 54, 
Kimoy uh, and Matsu, two uh, islands off the coast of China, and Red China decided to sh- this is how close they were. They shelled them with artillery. They shelled these uh, uh, Taiwanese islands with artillery. And everybody recommended to Eisenhower, almost unanimously, to nuke several Chinese cities and teach them a lesson. And this is where Eisenhower is at his greatest. And Kennedy was the same way. He would like the, the military men were the slightest provocation, nuke everybody. And they over Kimoy and Matsu, they would, and he says, this is insanity. This is, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, he literally gets up and walks out of the This is insanity. This is not going to happen. So, you know, he, he has a decency streak a, a mile wide. He, he's not a bloodthirsty guy, not an aggressive guy at all. So this is back when the use of nuclear weapons would, would not have the downside. There was really no downside except for some fallout back then. You didn't have to worry about retaliation. Well, the sheer scope of it, and it depends on the year. When Eisenhower came into uh, office, there were 120. Russia had 120 nukes. When he left, they had 2,000. Wow. It was, it was still such a feel-good thing post-Japan. Right. Because they ended the war with this one swoop. And the military folks were like, this is great. We don't risk anything. And they were very excited to use it. Uh, Eisenhower continued the Truman policy the, the Truman policy that was formulated by the Formosa Resolution. I don't know what the Formosa Resolution is. Well, the Formosa Resolution was the, it was the first step uh, towards what goes on now, which is Congress relinquishing its authority to decide if there's going to be a war. They were asking Eisenhower to intervene with nukes. They were asking him to intervene conventionally, and he just said, well, I'm getting all these mixed messages about what everyone thinks I should do. How about an authorization from Congress telling me I can do whatever I want with my military forces? And that, that was it. And he won. It was like, you know, it was like 400 to 8 in the Congress. So it was an overwhelming, but it set a very dangerous precedent that we're still dealing with today. It led to the, the, the Gulf of Tonkin incident. It led to the Bush Wars. It led to Congress, which at this point really doesn't have that much to say about how And it's how still America- in effect today, basically. More or less, yes, as a precedent. Perfect timing. We'll continue with Mike Donovan and Dwight D. Eisenhower on WBZ Boston's News Radio. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're with Mike Donovan, historian, and talking. we're talking about Dwight Eisenhower. And we're, we have a couple of crises to cover. A lot happened in, uh, in his, during his time as president. We uh, provided a lot of help monetarily to the French to fight Vietnam War, but when it really came crunch time, we didn't supply troops. Can you talk about that? Yes, we sent them a billion dollars in monetary aid, the French, but when uh, when the French deployed uh, at Dien Bien Phu, which is six miles, uh, six miles west of Vietnam, just into Laos, the French were basically challenging the communists to say, this is where we're going to... There wasn't any really great reason to put a fort there. 
it was a statement. Like, we can go anywhere we want, and, and we own this region, and what are you going to do about it? And they didn't think that the Vietnamese were capable of gathering any artillery and driving them out. But they didn't count on the Chinese and the Russians, and they, they had plenty of They had all the time in the world. It was like the... Uh, in 1775, when they dragged the cannons from Ticonderoga, it was just kind of similar. They said, all right, we'll take a few months, we'll get them down here. And after a while, all of a sudden, the French look up one day, and they're surrounded <laughs> by heavy artillery. They and misunderstood, just as we did, the, the long-term view that the Vietnamese had. They just, they're in no hurry, and there's a lot of strength in that. Right. So now, go ahead. everybody wanted the United States to intervene. The French were begging. They said, this is our only chance this is our only chance. His military advisors were saying, they were even asking him to consider dropping tactical nukes on the outside positions. And Eisenhower said, well, we'll end up killing all the French people anyway. So that's that idea is out. But when he said no, it came as a great shock to the French. The French said, well, tell you what, why don't you call the British? They'll back you, they'll back you up. And if, if it's a threesome, it's, it's, it's the French, the Americans, it'd be the old wartime alliance. And they called up the British, and the British did their Beavis and Butthead, uh, no. <laughs> yeah. And that was the end of it. And then in 1950, and it was interesting because just at that time that Dien Bien Phu surrendered, they were having the meetings in Geneva to decide the fate of Vietnam. And at the time, it was French Indochina. There weren't four separate countries. And in 1955, the four countries were created, South Vietnam, North Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. They were c created at the Geneva Conference. Do you think we should have helped them out with troops because we ended up no. owning that completely? Would, it, would we have avoided that if we had no, helped well, out with troops? Well, for one thing, I don't think they, they would have won. So okay. that's just for starters. Now, something very important that, that I know nothing about is the Suez Crisis of 56. I know it's important because you said it was important. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of things in history that aren't that big that slip through the cracks, but every once in a while something gigantic slips through the cracks. I don't know how it happens, but in the history of the 20th century, it's almost an obscure story. In 1956, the, uh, the Egyptians decided they're going to nationalize the Suez Canal and they're not going to allow Israel to use it anymore and they're going to cut off the Gulf of uh, Aqaba. And they say, you can't use that either. So you are completely cut off. We're, we're not just going to seize the canal. We're going to destroy Israel through economic strangulation. And Israel decided to attack. And they uh, started a war. They attacked Egypt, and there was a battle going on for the Suez Canal. And then the French and the British started organizing their troops, and they were going to intervene. And everybody just presumed that the United States was going to join the club and get involved in this. And it was just going to be Israel, France, Britain, and the United States against Egypt. And Eisenhower just did the Beavis and, uh, no, no. And people were pretty shocked. And it was a very bold move. And the whole history of the world would have been different. Talk about a seminal moment. You know, everybody got over it eventually, by the way. You know, everybody, Israel was bitter for a while. They got over it. France and, and Britain, they, they were mad for a, for a while, but they got over it. And in the meantime, Egypt retained its sovereignty. Uh, because if the three of these countries had destroyed Egypt and consumed it in a, in a neo-imperialist war, been, I, don't, I don't see how world history would have been improved by that event. Right. So that's a great mark on Eisenhower's record as far as I'm concerned. To how, do, he should deserve the Nobel Prize for doing nothing. How much of a shooting war did that end up being? Uh, Israel lost uh, 167 killed. 
And I think Egypt lost about six or 700. So there was some violence. Okay, later on, but not too much later. No, actually, same year. Over in Hungary, there was the Soviet invasion during the Hungarian, Hungarian Revolution. And again, no action. But it, it connected. They were happening at the same time. It's another thing you don't see it mentioned in the books. They, there's one chapter about Hungary, and then there's a second chapter about some. It was going on at the same time. That was one of the reasons Eisenhower had to say, listen, I have to keep my options open regarding Hungary. I can't tie down American forces in a, a war for the Suez that we didn't have anything to do with in the first place. Wow. As you look back at Dwight Eisenhower, he was a really great president. President. I think he was. And he doesn't rate that highly among the uh, historians in the polls. Do they say why? I can't say why. He wasn't popular. He, he was criticized for being uh, uh, his syntax during it. You know, they made fun of him if he said something. He was a very educated man. It was a very unfair. He golfed too much. It was too, too, too hands off. I'm not sure what the criticism was. When I asked my father, what'd you think? He was golfing all the time. I don't know. I wasn't there. I was five years old. Uh, I was born in 55, so I lived, semi-lived. I was an infant, but I was, I was in his era. But I can't form an opinion based on experience. You know what? The good time to talk about how he irritated his uh, anti, well, Kennedy with cleats in the Oval Office. Well, first of all, he golfed all the time. That's true. But he also golfed on the front lawn of the White House, and the Secret Service was going ballistic. You can't keep doing this. You just And then he went and started doing paintings. He sat on the front lawn of the White House painting, and then they just said, "This, that's it. We're going to resign unless you stop doing this. And so he agreed to stop doing it. But he was big in the, in the Oval Office. He was golfing all the time. You know, he was putting. And then when Kennedy came in, He'd be sitting there in his rocking chair, pondering what a burden it was to have to fill Ike's shoes all the time, being compared to Eisenhower all the time. And then he's thinking about this pressure, and he's staring at the ground. He sees the cleat marks. There's all these scuff marks on the floor. In the Oval Office. Yes, from his cleats. So he'd, go, he'd be golfing out on the lawn. He'd just come in back to the Oval yeah, Office. Yeah, and he'd go putting inside. So I just thought that's a funny scene. That It is. He, and I heard that he was such a fanatic that he, he golfed in winter and snow, and he had his golf balls painted black so he could you could see them. I don't know how true that is. That I didn't know. And then, you know, he, he uh, authorized the establishment of NASA after the Sputnik freakout in 1957. Yes, I guess the only uh, good story I might have on that is that the when those giant uh, rockets they were designed to carry heavy, heavy warheads nuclear warheads. That's why they were so gigantic. And then they became obsolete because now the nuclear bombs have become smaller and lighter. And now all of a sudden these giant, giant thick rockets are, they're obsolete. So, hey, I got to use idea. them for something. We got an idea. How about if we put manned space capsules on top of them? So that was so part of the was decision kind of an, for the space race? Yes, it was kind of an accident of history that, that we had these gigantic old rockets that were capable of heavy, handling a heavy load on top, just ready to, to be used for something. And they, most of the moon uh, was, was rockets that were originally designed to send uh, nukes. So usually Eisenhower said no when it came to troop deployment. But in 1958, in a thing called the Lebanon crisis, he did deploy 15,000 soldiers. Talk about that. 
Well, that's another unknown story. In 1955, uh, Iraq and Turkey started the Baghdad Pact, which was directed against the Soviet Union as a defensive alliance. And then Iran joined, and a couple of other smaller countries joined. And the United States didn't officially join, but everybody knew that the United States was, the, was backing the whole thing up. It was called the Baghdad Pact. And things were going along pretty good. We had, you know, good connections in Iran. We have uh, the Baghdad Pact going. We have Turkey and uh, Iraq in our corner. Everything's going fine. Then all of a sudden, in 1958, a revolution takes place in Iraq, and the uh, the heads of government are hacked to death in the street. And uh, this Qasem takes over, and he becomes uh, friendly to the very friendly to the Soviet Union. He wasn't a communist, but he became very friendly to the Soviet Union. And at that point, as a gesture to let everybody know that we're not going to get pushed around the Middle East and we're going to have some say in things and we're not going to take this lying down, the United States presumed that this might be a chain reaction. There were other revolutions planned. And somebody got the idea that there was a revolution going to take place in Lebanon any day now to follow up the one that happened in Iraq. And so all these people are sitting on the beach getting a suntan, and all of a sudden the United States deploys 15,000 people. They land on the beach in full gear with the guns deployed, and all this. It's just sunbathers going. Well, there was nothing going on. It was kind of, a, it was kind of embarrassing. The United States was ridiculed for this intervention, but you know I don't see it as any big mistake. It was just a precautionary measure, and it was a, an incorrect calculation about what was going on. Couple, three things to go with uh, Dwight David Eisenhower. Kennedy gets the rap for Bay of Pigs, but it was approved by Dwight Eisenhower. Well, yes, the infamous meeting is January 19th, 1961. All of the Kennedy, uh, the incoming team, they're, they're, they walk in with big smiles. They're bounding and just bursting with joy, and they come in. They're going to meet all these venerable people in the Eisenhower team, Christian Herter and, and Ike and all the rest of them. They're all... So I gets really serious. So that he starts telling him, we got some important stuff. To, this isn't a casual meeting. And he lays the bay of pigs, lets them know. But they're like, oh, well, that's... Uh, that's heavy. It's going to be a very bad thing if I go along with this, and it's going to be a very bad thing if I try to kill it. Why would it be a bad thing if he did not go along with it, if he tried to kill it? Well, it would just seem there was so much preparation already. There were, there were teams being already, you know, the th it had been. It's pretty a far long, down the long, road. Yes, it was. It was almost ready to go, and it didn't. It was in April '61 that it was launched. So, like, it was. There was a lot of background. It would have been embarrassing to the CIA because it was mostly a CIA operation. But the other thing that ruined the day for these, uh, you know, these young upstarts, you know, the young generation, the forty-ish crowd coming in to talk to the sixty-ish crowd is he told him, you have to, he literally said, you have to intervene in Laos. And I was like, what? You have, to in, you have to put American troops on the ground in Laos. If we lose Laos, we're going to lose North, North Vietnam, South Vietnam, Cambodia, and then Thailand will be threatened. It's the beginning of the end. The communists are infiltrating Laos. They're about to take over in Laos. And they walked out of there, and they were just, everybody mentioned, the reporters, like, what, what were these faces when they came out of the meeting? They walked in all bubbly, and they walked out with these long faces. So Eisenhower, this is where I'd criticize Eisenhower. He 
was telling Kennedy to make a call that he wouldn't make for years. Every, people were telling him to intervene in Laos. And he said, well, I don't know. As if next year, I'll just would, would run out the clock and, and give it to Kennedy and tell him that this isn't a recommendation. This is me telling you you have to do this. And in retrospect, a couple of years later, after thing, you know, we lost Laos. Laos became neutralized, but everybody knew what that meant. That meant that it was essentially communist, but we weren't going to contest that. And we couldn't protest too much because the whole American war had been run by the CIA, so we technically had to say that we weren't fighting it. There was an ongoing war that the CIA was conducting on its own, and Eisenhower was saying we have to take it the next step up and make it an actual intervention. And the, the Kennedy team is saying, well, we didn't even know about it to begin with, and this is a lot to lay on us the night before the big inaugural. And well, I was going to ask, why didn't this come up in campaign? Because it was, because so, it was, it was secret. So, it was so secretive to begin with. And looking back, most of the team, the Kennedy team, looking back in their memoirs in the mid-'60s, was saying, you know, we were just too in awe of Eisenhower. If we had stopped and really thought it over, we would have said we should take a stand and say we're going to decide on our foreign policy from the ground up, and we're not going to take this recommendation that we have to intervene in Laos. It just caused a lot of stress for the whole team, and when they lost Laos, Kennedy had to say, well, I have to intervene somewhere. I've been humiliated at the Bay of Pigs. I've been humiliated at the meeting in Vienna with Khrushchev. That's another story. I was humiliated. Uh, the country was just humiliated with the U-2 incident, which is another story. But he basically said, I have to intervene. West Berlin has been a humiliation. I can't look like a guy that's weak on communism. I have to take a stand somewhere. And that's why he intervened in Vietnam. One more thing. It's kind of a backtrack before we get to your comedy stand-up comedy book. He uh, opposed Joseph McCarthy kind of on the down low, but he did openly invoke executive privilege again. Another example of that to end McCarthyism. Does that sound right to you? I'm not sure. All right. So let's go to the, the, the uh, stand-up comedy book now. This is a, You say this is going to be big. It says the stand-up comedy book. What is it? Well, this was the year of looking backwards. There was a great book by Edward Bellamy written in 1888. It looked to the utopian socialist future, and it was set in Boston. It was called Looking Backwards. It was such a successful book. It was a phenom. It was the Bellamists became a, a, they had meetings. They called themselves Bellamists. It was a few. But anyway, looking backwards, this was the year I'm going back over all my very old writings that like stuff I've been writing for the last 40 years and I'm creating books out of the old writings and actually on New Year's Eve I'm gonna I'm gonna put an end to it but one of them is the stand-up book it's basically a lot of old writings about stand-up some new writings some A to Z right that small edition is $250 because I don't want anyone to buy it it's too new but I but I wanted to launch it so okay. the, the book exists it's very small I don't expect anyone to pay that but someday that's gonna be gigantic because if there's one thing I know about comedian books, they're very thin. <laughs> and when I'm done, it's going to be everything. It's going to be anecdotes. It's going to be how to do comedy. It's going to be A to Z. There'll be an in memoriam section for the comics we've lost. Maybe it'll Story. be like the comedy Bible. It, it'll, it's going to be big. And it's also going to be me. I, you know, I, I have some angst about, about things. You know, I got, so, I got so, a few things to say. I'm not all... When it comes to comedy, it's been a long road, and a lot of things have happened. I'm not going to rip people, but 
it's it's not going to be all uh, designed to try to uh, to come out all smooth and nice. Some of it will be nice, and some of it might not be. But the stories, you know, this I've known so many famous comedians. There's a lot of great stories, and it's just going to grow. You know, the book is going to grow. That's so there's actually going to be some advice in here, like the very first thing, a good intro. That's advice, right? You need to have a good intro. It's crucial. It's like the, you know what it's like? It's like the luge. At the top of the luge, there's that little push. Yeah. It doesn't seem like much, but, but it's, it's, all about that. it's compounding interest all the way down the chute. So if you don't get a good intro, you don't get that push at the top of the hill. So what makes a good intro? I mean, is there a way you can yeah, empower your student? Personalize it. Make it, make, it, uh, make it personal. Make it sincere, even if you don't like the guy. This next guy, you know, I've been working with him on WBZ, uh, this, uh, this guy, and, and he's very funny. Uh, and nobody even knows that he does stand-up comedy. And, and you know, a few years ago, somebody told him to go down and try open mic. And now, he's, the last couple of years, he's just really doing great. It's just, uh, I'm just so proud to, to, to see what he's done with it. Let's, get, let's hear it for Bradley J. Come on, let's personalize the thing. The big push down the hill. Push, personalize. Okay. It. Make it sincere, even if it's not. And you say uh, that you got a good intro about half the time? Uh, well, I'd say about 30% of the time. This pro, you, you probably know, the, the you, best two intros I ever got in my life were both from Sean McDonough. Really? Yeah, I did private shows. One time I did the baseball winter banquet meetings. And, uh, and he gave this, it was just a long intro. When I first saw Mike Dunham, I came down to the Comedy Connection, and, and he gave me this tape, and I play it from, it, it was kind of elaborate. And by the time I was introduced, he had told, uh, he had made the intro into a little story. And it was just the best. It really made the show great. And then there was another one I did at the Kowloon where he was the host. Uh, one of the Patriots players was there. It was a charity. And it was the same thing. It was this long story, and he finishes with my name, and it, ju it just makes the show easy. So the Ding Ho, this is an aside, the Ding Ho was crucial to early comedy in Boston? Were you around for that? Well, the, you were, the right? comedy connection was first. I so see. That was, I'd love at, to, that was at the Charles Playhouse. Are you the guy that would you know, be a guest to, to talk about the beginnings of comedy in Not Boston? Not really. All right. Who, who would you recommend? We can talk about that later. Yeah. All right. So it's Mike Donovan. He has a million books. Really, almost a million. You have many, many books. 83. 83 books. And you can find them by simply searching Amazon for Mike Donovan, but you're going to have to scroll uh, down to find the actual Mike Donovan because there are a lot of Mike Donovans. And there's the stand-up comedy book. It's really not out there yet, but that's just kind of a heads up. It's going to be big. Unless you want to pay two twenty-five. Yeah, two fifty. <laughs> yeah. But one last thing about Eisenhower: he would have destroyed John Kennedy in nineteen sixty, except for the Twenty-fifth Amendment, which prevented him from running. If Nixon, who was very unpopular, razor thin race lost by razor thin, think of what Eisenhower would have done. And the Republicans ended up regretting that they had forced that amendment through because the first thing that happened was it came back to bite them in sixty. All right. That's Mike Donovan. By the way, the way he writes, his history is a little bit different, and there's a little bit of his, his angular comedic self hidden in there. It's WBZ. Thanks a lot for coming in. Thank you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. 
Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.